Thank you, sisters and brothers. Very humbling uh, introduction. When I actually chose this uh, topic, I was going actually down memory lane. Of course, down memory lane is one of the books written by Charity Maharaj about his own life. In the beginning of 2000, there was a movie on uh, quantum physics called uh, What the Bleep Do We Know? Very revolutionary. It, it is a sort of a docu-movie. A very revolutionary movie those days and it really uh, made me think a lot. And uh, I have had the fortune of watching this uh, movie along with both uh, Chariji and Daji several times in Manapakam Cottage. And every time when I saw that, it was one of the favorite movies of Chariji Maharaj. Whenever I saw that, it always sort of spun a lot of uh, tales in my head and spun a lot of information in my head. And it indeed is a very uh, humbling experience. Actually, what the bleep do we know? I mean, there is actually a funny side to it that the bleep can also be other words and uh, the, the songs where you have the letters uh, truncated and then it goes on what the B do we know. Actually it is so. In a way it is a very uh, powerful introspective question. Little bit apparently demeaning and a little bit uh, provocative. When you ask anyone what the bleep do you know, they might get offended and hence I use the topic what the bleep do we know. Let me start with uh, a story and an anecdote. The story that I'm going to start with is uh, from uh, Mahabharata, one of my all-time favorite epics, mainly because of the variety of uh, information that one can pick up. And every story has multiple uh, side stories and uh, the kind of learning that one can pick up from Mahabharata is uh, never ending. The sheer uh, magnum opus of that, I'm just going to pick up one small portion of that and start connecting the dots to arrive maybe at a larger picture towards the end. Normally, whenever I present, I tend to weave a lot, which means you will be seeing multiple threads going here and there. And uh, apparently, it might look asymmetrical. And normally towards the end, the fabric emerges for you to see what actually was being shared about. This story is about uh, the sage uh, Durvasa. He, one of the times, uh, wants to invite Lord Krishna to have uh, food with him. And uh, he goes and uh, invites uh, Lord Krishna, saying that uh, we in our ashram would like to have you tonight for dinner. Initially, Lord Krishna was reluctant because uh, Durvasa is supposed to be a very angry sage, angry Vishi. But finally, he relents. And uh, the time that was given was about uh, 9.30 in the night. And a lot of preparations go on because the Lord himself is going to come for uh, having dinner. Durvasa and all the people in the ashram make a lot of efforts in making one of the best meals that is possible worthy of being offered to the Lord. The time gets closer and closer to 9.30 and uh, they still don't see uh, any signs of Lord Krishna making an appearance. And those were not the days of WhatsApp or whatever, but they had something far superior. 
telepathy and heart to heart communication which had been perfected he was uh, in his own way thinking to see what what that what krishna is he was not able to find because obviously lord was uh, playing uh, tricks with him and around 9:30 when uh, durvasa really runs out of his uh, patience and he is on the verge of getting angry he never spared even the gods from his anger he is about to get angry and uh, come out with one of his famous uh, curse and then suddenly from nowhere a very big uh, wild boar appears completely stinky it has just come out of maybe a slush and runs straight into the ashram and nobody is able to stop it and as it runs amok it runs everywhere and then eats the food which is kept for the lord himself and durvasa really gets very 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 angry and he takes a stick and spanks the pig the wild boar a few times and the wild boar runs away and before they all realize what is happening the spank that was given to the wild boar was felt on the same places in the body of everyone in the ashram including durvasa himself later he realized it was the lord himself who had disguised it come as a pig the first uh, lesson here is uh, something for us to introspect even people of such high caliber as uh, durvasa who was considered to be a very elevated uh, rishi could not actually find who the lord was because he was looking for lord the way in which the physical form of the lord that he was aware of and was expecting lord to come like a kalyana purusha completely dressed the way in which he is supposed to come maybe in his rat being pulled by a chariot and all those paraphernalia and he didn't expect imagine people like durvasa are still there we really don't know what we are seeking and when we seek and that comes to us we really don't know what we sought is what is in front of us are we really capable of really knowing understanding what actually is being given to us in day to day life in our mundane life in our spiritual life in all walks of life are we even aware the second one is an anecdote i had uh, several years ago had uh, the chance uh, to be in the company of uh, charles maharaj in my apartment cottage and then the topic veered around and uh, charles ji kept asking a few questions to a few people were there and there were apparently many intelligent people i am not including surely myself there quite a lot of people and he posed uh, quite a few scientific logical questions one of the question i still remember which is fresh in my mind which is still fresh in my mind he just said go and stand in front of the mirror not physically though he said go and stand in front of the mirror when your right hand is reflected on the left side and your left hand is reflected on the right side why is it that the head is not reflected in the toe or the toe is not reflected in the head like this he came out with a set of about six or seven questions questions which apparently are not even you can't just understand the question we were not finding the answer it took me almost 2 to 3 months those days were not the time internet was that popular of course you still you still had search engines like yahoo and google was still coming up 
I was able to search and then locate a book which had been written. The the topic was something like unsolved questions or something like that. I was able to order and get it, and then when I read all the answers, he smilingly nodded to say that many of these answers were right. But even the intelligent people who were sitting there really did not know the questions. They were only the answers to what he was asking. With this story and anecdote, let's move a little bit further. I am very sure that all of us would uh, interact a lot with children, and children, when they get really naughty or when they really get inquisitive, are the most difficult to handle. Let me give you a series of questions that children have asked their parents or their teachers, and the same question that I am going to ask is something that I want you to tell me whether you know the answers. For example, let me ask you: What is air? what is fire what is water what is sea what is a sun what is a moon these are the kind of questions children normally used to ask when they are age of 1 to 2 if you might recall you might have asked the same set of questions to your parents too in all probabilities either the parents told you that these are the questions which will be answered later or they gave you answers like water if they have been a chemistry student they would have come and told you it's nothing but h2o consisting a portion of hydrogen portion of oxygen but that is the chemical composition of water what exactly is water what is river what is a hill what is sand these are the fundamental questions many of us have sailed through in our life without even ever making an attempt to find what the answers are to this and it many people freely question concepts like who is god what is god does god exist and things like that even in a worldly plane the small toys that nature has given us we really don't know even if you google you will not be able to find this uh, the answers for this Many of these answers will have to come to you from within, or you really need to dig deep to find and go and get the answers for questions like this. And these are the questions which are the most toughest, which are the best to ask. Yet these are the questions which actually shows that we literally know nothing. What the big do we know? For example, whatever you know as of today. in all probabilities would nothing be better than what we call as a rote learning system a rote learning system is when from the time of childhood till today whatever you have apparently learned is nothing but information download cliches prejudices so called knowledge passed on by someone who has read the books marked up past it either partly understanding or not understanding for you to make it up again for you to pass an exam for you to get an employment for you to start a family go through it have children and go through the end of the life without ever really actually learning predominantly we rarely gain knowledge what we are gaining is nothing but loads and loads and loads of information that we memorize and commit to our system and thanks to the internet proliferation today 
people don't even have to remember uh, table two, leave alone knowing table one. You should be happy if someone knows the first table. Beyond second table, you have a calculator, you have Google, you have everything else. You just go and search and find the answers. What are you really learning? You have learned the art of fetching answers the way a dog would fetch a bone for the question that is thrown at us. There are, of course, for every million people, there will be five or ten who really create these answers. These are the people who go on to become the people who actually churn out knowledge for everybody else to copy it, everybody else to form their own cliches. Finally, the question that I always put across to many people, are we actually KTs? What is a KT? A knowledge thief. What have we stolen? We have stolen nothing but knowledge from, so-called knowledge, from all the books that we have read, memorized, committed to our memory cells. And whatever I am able to recall, I appear to be intelligent. Whatever I don't recall, if I am smart enough, I quickly search wherever it is supposed to be searched for, share the answer so that I appear intelligent. Truly, are we really knowledgeable? I did a quick uh, Google search on some easy questions and some tough questions about what kind of knowledge practically we are supposed to have on a day-to-day -day basis, some mundane examples from day-to-day -day life. I am going to share some of the questions. You might have seen, in when you take a product, you would have seen an R return around it. Many of us might know that uh, this depicts a registration symbol for which you have a copyright. Very simple answer. Maybe it comes out of your memory. The next one, if you are a lady specifically, you will have what is known as a nail cuticles, which you draw on the edges of the nails. Would we ever know why we do that? Other than the purpose for which we are convinced that it is used for beauty. But there is something beyond that, health related. Three, when you take any of the coins that you have, one rupee, five rupee, ten rupee, you never find a coin which is not rich. All the coins will rich, which means they will have the edges which are sharp. Little bit dented, but little bit blunt, but they'll have, they'll not be a perfect circle. Why are they like that? And if you look at the headphones that you consistently use uh, in your mobile phone or any of your other uh, entertainment mechanisms, if you look at the cable which goes into the other side and then open the head, you will find there are three stripes. Do you know why those stripes are there? What the function of those stripes are? And then when you look at uh, the padlocks, the old locks that you have, when you turn them around, at the bottom you will find there will be normally two holes. Do you ever know why those two holes exist? Then. Many of the genes which come today, even now you have what is known as a half belt with buttons. Which means there is no pocket. At the back side, you'll have a half belt, like a belt, which is stitched to the bottom of the band, near where your pockets exist. Do you know why they exist? What is the purpose? Do you know why the golf balls which people play with have the dimples on the surface, which originally never existed in the original design? When you look at the Notebooks that you all take to read and write, you have the margins on both the sides. Why do those margins exist? 
when you look at the sunglasses that we wear, where they tinted, when you look at the fruit band and dots that you have on the windshield of a car, you will find that there are thin black stripes which run. Do you know why they exist? A very simple thing, many of us might, when you go to a bakery, eating this a lot, donuts. Where do the donuts have a hole in the middle? Why are they consistently of the same size and shape? One final question for homemakers. Why do you have stickers on the fruits? What is the purpose? Many times when we eat, we actually get angry. You know, why, why they put a sticker? Can't they not give it without the sticker? So it becomes easy for us to eat. Let me now ask you a bonus question. You all have the standard knives at home that we have in the uh, writing desks, which we use for multi-purpose. There is a cap on the other side. On one side you have the knife, the other side you have a cap at the top. Do you know why it exists? Now, let me come to a very, very serious question. How many of us who are watching this program, including myself who is giving the talk to you right now, why do we meditate? Why do we clean? Why do we pray? Do we really know? Or we are just following something because out of fear, because out of temptation, because out of the so-called belief and faith. These are things that I want you to think a little bit about. I was just doing a deep search on Google when I chose this topic. And I started searching on a string. What are the things that man doesn't know? I was surprised to find there were close to about a million results plus, which was flashed by Google, running into hundreds and hundreds of pages. Things that we actually do not know. And by fetching that information is what Google makes that money from. There is a famous saint in uh, Tamil uh, literature known as Avayat. I always quote her famous quote in many of my talks because it really communicates something which is the biggest essence. When she is asked by several people, what do you know? Her standard response was, which means what I have learned is less than the what I can hold within the fist of my hand, whatever is inside. And what I don't know, what I have not learned is the size of the universe. The famous quote of Einstein, stupidity and the size of the universe are limitless. And then he went on to jokingly say, I'm not sure about the size of stupidity of humans. And that's what even a famous scientist like Einstein said. Let's now look at actually what is knowledge? What has it got to do with what we are talking about here? Are we really knowledgeable? Or are we just a rote memory machine? Or are we a combination of both with a percentage, a fraction of like 0.00001 of the total memory that we have, which is actually the knowledge, which is what is actually useful, the rest being just memory. If you look at the etymology in English, which studies the root of the words of any word, knowledge comes from a Greek word called gnosis, 
it actually means it's something that you know through observation or through experience to knowledge according to the root of the word from where knowledge came gnosis which is a greek word means what goes inside of you through observation and through experience in this fast paced world do you even have the time to wait and observe and moving from being an observer to being a witness which will make you really grow in the learning curve of knowledge do you even have the time we are all hurried for time all the time for the sake of many of us to great extent are driven by our material requirements of life and whatever helps us to progress that we are ready to quickly grab and convert that into some kind of a tool for us to enhance our material uh, prosperity doesn't matter whether we actually learn whether we experience whether we are able to observe all that actually doesn't matter we just look at it we quickly connect back to our material existence or emotional existence or mental existence and then find what is the dot which connects all this if i make some uh, money out of it if i make some kind of a, if it allows me to survive it allows me to feel good i quickly grab that deploy it without you knowing what it actually means which means we don't observe enough if you don't observe enough if you don't observe long enough there is no way that you can convert that observation into basic learning and put that basic learning into some kind of an experience what our masters always say the best way to learn anything is to experience and then put the framework later if you look at the street side uh, mechanics the person who runs the automobile shop many times they don't even touch the car of the two wheelers it is the small boys who have been picking up the bikes and two wheelers from the age of 5 or 6 because of the need they know actually how it works but the people who are running the shop they know the framework they know how to talk they know how to run the business they have learned through observation and through experience but we ask him what is gear what is a clutch he may not be able to answer but he actually would be able to sit right to your automobile a two wheeler or a car or whatever in no time as compared to a person who can only talk i am not taking credit away from someone who is an automobile mechanic absolutely not he studied automobile engineering of course it needs a lot of work for you to do that whatever the branch of education that you have gone through if you really look at it real knowledge then comes from observation or experience which technically actually says what our ancestors had gone through till about 200 300 years ago even maybe about 100 years ago the concept of gurukul where everything was personalized to each student no two students except the basic shlokas or the concepts no two students were taught the same subjects they were allowed to observe the guru looked at them they found out what was the predominant expertise that the, of course in those varnashram days there was hardly much that a person had to learn there were only four verticals and within that there were certain sub verticals and all that and the person had to observe the guru observed him and then allowed that person to play around and get by himself 
through that observation and knowledge and by putting that experience, it really became a knowledge which settled inside that person. And that defined the person for the rest of his life. Today in this fast-paced world, we even have time to sit and observe. For example, when you are meditating or when you are doing your work, do you have the time to sit and observe? It comes by what you call as a sense of wonder. Every time when you find something happening, does it create a sense of wonder in you? Does it kindle something in you that I have to observe? How do my hands move? If you ask a doctor, he'll say you have bones and there is a central processing unit which passes the message, your limbic system takes over, all that is fine. What actually then makes me? And then somebody else comes and says, no, no, it's because of a karmic equation. Somebody comes and says, because it's of gravity. Somebody comes and says, because of so and so. We are bombarded with inputs from so many people based on their observation, their experience. Do they have a 360 degree? In all probabilities, not. They have looked at the wheel of life through one spoke which connects them to that vision that they have. Like the elephant which was seen by five blind men. They look at it from that side and because they see it so well, they become an expert. And because they are an expert, when they say something, you have to listen. Hence, when your body disagrees with something that you eat, your mind disagrees with something that you sense, do we take the time out to observe? Do we take a time out to experience what is happening to us through the process of observation? This is where the two roots of knowledge actually gain inside of us. Do we have time for that? Or do we have time just because, okay, the world is not going to wait for me. I have to run, I have to buy my car, I have to go for a holiday, and whatever, whatever, whatever. Spiritualists, I have to progress very fast. Find a way in which I can progress. But yet, by the sheer observation, when a guru meditates, where a master craftsman works, are we looking at the output, the final product that is going to come to us, or do we enjoy the process of observing what is unfolding in front of us? When a guru meditates, do you sit and watch how he meditates? Not physically, with the inner eye. And what experience do you gain? What is the quality of experience? Recently, Daji mentioned in one of the talks, that Babaji Maharaj used to reach the level of pinnacle in just about 5 to 10 seconds of meditation, what we cannot do our entire lifetime. And yet, when Babaji meditates, you have a photograph in front of you when you watch, what do we find? We just look at it, oh, Babaji Maharaj is meditating. That's it. Do we pick up that ability to observe what is happening? What is it so different that a person like him can meditate. A person like Buddha can appear from nowhere and do certain things. A person like Lalaj Maharaj appears. A person like Einstein appears. Because they all specialize in observing inside and outside. And then when they converted that observation into interiorized knowledge through the process of experience, they are able to teach. If you really look at it, I have an introspective question for you. What is your current way of, and deliberately using the word here, grabbing knowledge? Are you grabbing knowledge? Or are you waiting for knowledge to unfold through the process of observation and gaining the relevant experience? It's up to you to decide. There is also a saying that true knowledge 
is only Brahma Vidya. Nothing else really matters. What is Brahma Vidya? Put it this way, in a very, very high end terms, let me give two spectrums so that we understand it easy. Brahma Vidya is the knowledge that will help you, taking you towards the Brahm. Here the Brahm is the goal. For a materialistic person who is highly focused on success in his day-to-day life, for him, Brahm is nothing but money, or wealth, or a better car, or a better home, or a better family, or whatever. If you really understand that Brahmavitya is a knowledge that will help you taking towards the Brahm, the one who goes towards Brahm, the source, is called as Brahma. It's not by caste, it's not by birth, it is by what you do by meditating. Then we need to understand then what is Brahma or Brahman. In Sanskrit, as recently Daji was explaining, Brahman is derived from the word Guha to grow or to expand and man is to think. So Brahman or Brahm is the one which expands by thinking. Whereas Atman, what we are, which is the soul, the Jivatma, is that there is movement. Atman actually means at means move and man here is the thinking of the soul. In a way, if you really look at it, it changes from people to people. What moves and about what uh, you are thinking is to a great extent determined by what your focus is on, what your goal is on. Hence, if you really take it, that which moves and thinks is Atman and that which grows and thinks is Brahman. From this viewpoint, if you really look at it, wherever there is Jiva, it is all Brahman. Because the Jiva is nothing but by movement you are seeing if you can go and align to that which is expanding. And once you are part of that, you continuously expand. You start understanding what Brahm is and then you become integrated into the process. And for that, your ability to observe experience, observe experience, observe experience. It's a continuous cycle which is essential. Hence, if you really look at it, Brahman, absolutely speaking, is a transitory nature. It's continuously expanding. So where the Kusnafi ever attaining what is the end of it? And hence knowledge of Brahman will include everything else in this world. In a way, if you really look at it, if you are a person who is on the path of seeking Brahman, you are a Brahman. In the sense, you are through the process of movement and thinking, you are getting as a subset of which is expanding and thinking and you are integrating yourself into that and everything else that happens around you automatically is nothing but a subset of that. This is what all the saints say, this is what all the rishis say, this is what all the masters say. But it is not something that I can tell you, you will understand, nor would I understand, nor would you understand. something that you have to observe. It is something that you have to integrate into your life by the process of observation and experiencing it then maybe you move from what the belief do we know to maybe a slightly better level. You start wondering, you start really gaining the two uh, threads and fabrics of uh, knowledge and through that a fabric would emerge, an endless fabric which keeps on growing and growing and growing. 
Let me ask you a few rhetoric questions here. If you are a student of life, student in a school, student in a college or whatever, student of spirituality, student of material science, what is knowledge for you? If you are a teacher, what is knowledge for you? If you are a professional, what is knowledge for you? If you claim to be a person who is in the spiritual path, what is knowledge for you, for you or what, what is knowledge for them meant to be? If you understand slowly through the process of observation and experience, answers to these questions, maybe we move out of a rote memory system of reading forwards, of reading, watching videos because somebody sent it. We are all grabber of knowledge, as I mentioned. Are we grabbing knowledge? The real ability is when Nethi, Nethi has this, I don't need this, I don't need this, I don't need this, I don't, because this is not going to help me take me towards God. And that cannot come by someone telling you, somebody teaching you. Even when somebody is telling you or teaching you, they may be sharing it from their level of experience. Having now experienced something, I can eat mangoes and tell you that it is sweet, but if you've never eaten a mango in your life, whatever theory I put behind it, if you've never even tasted sweetness in your life, how will you ever understand what is sweetness? You need to observe what I do. And then through the process of a little bit of wonder and experiencing, you start understanding what that actually means. You now experience, oh wow, this is what it is. You go through that. Let's even look at the field of uh, doctors today, the times of pandemic, what we are currently going through. Do even doctors come together to agree on anything? The allopathy doctors have their own way of looking at what COVID is. The Siddha have their own way of looking at what COVID is, how to treat Ayurveda, Homeo, Yunani, the naturopathies. Everyone has their own way of looking at the human body. Who's right? Who's wrong? Specifically, in the, even the current context of pandemic. This is precisely what happens when a person who has knowledge through the process of experience of becoming a doctor, even in a specific vertical field that they are in, they get stuck there. They get into a silos. They can't get beyond this. Can't you think of a holistic medical system where everybody can peacefully? coexist and find a common way of attacking this pandemic or any future pandemics to come. It is because even that little bit of knowledge that we have gained through the process of, for an example, an allopathy would have, would have gone through his medical science degree, would have looked at cadavers, would have done surgeries, would have looked at the body from a specific way of looking at it. But if, for example, an acupuncturist comes, he speaks about uh, chi, the energy, the yin and yang. Allopathists might laugh, saying that it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There are a few who integrate, who are able to look at it holistically. But yet, other than for commercial purposes, where all these exist under one roof in some hospital, do you really find people? If you flip this now, look at the process of moving towards God realization. What is happening? Everyone, like a frog in the well, looks at the concept of God from the prism of their current 
understanding based on what they have been taught from the Bible, what they have been taught by religious texts, what has been taught, and then they put together a framework saying that this is what God is. And hence, what happens is when someone comes, Fred Charity Maharaj used to caution us several times: do not think that Sajmar is the only way. In fact, Bhavji Maharaj had found out alternate systems, alternate ways in which the goal can be achieved. And when he verified with Lalaj Maharaj, Akarn Lalaj Maharaj said, "Yes, what you are saying is right." And then Bhavji Maharaj asked him, "Should I take this path?" He says, "The current path, what you are pursuing, is good for you." If you want to pursue the other one, do an experiment. It's up to you. Whether Babaji did did not do, it's a different uh, context altogether. But for us to think, for example, let's assume God realization has reached the top of Everest, Mount Everest, the summit. Is there only one way? Till Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing Norway reached one specific way, they found a way to the top. There could have been people who reached to the top who didn't come back, who died. Hence, we don't know who was the first to climb. But let's assume historically, based on whatever information, that these are the people who reached there at the top for the first time. Did it stop from others approaching Mount Everest from other ways? No. There are today umpteen ways in which Mount Everest can be scaled. The same way, God realization from the time God has been searched for by so many. So, so many masters, so many messiahs, so many gurus, so many messengers of God—they found their own ways. Whether they reached or not, whether they reached only up to a point, it's a question for us to debate. Even there, we can quote Babaji Maharaj and say that so and so came up to this point. Is it our anubhav shakti? Is it our experiential knowledge, or is it a knowledge that we are picking up from all the books that the masters have written? Is there a way in which we can actually observe experience? Can you meditate right now? Project yourself to that time. Babu Maharaj once returned somewhere that you can project yourself to the past, to the future. Look at the current. It's like looking at three clouds. This is the past. This is the present. This is the future. If it has happened, it's already there. Can you go back and find what happened and find out who has actually reached? Even there, we are living on borrowed knowledge. And when we actually do that, we are walking on a dangerous path of uh, trading with very limited, acquired memory. It's, it's not even knowledge. Some of us might have a little bit, based on the transmission that's given, based on the experience we've gone through. We may have glimpses of a few things, but we cannot say with certainty this is the only way to approach God. This is the only way to live life. This is the only way to do things. This is the only way to earn money. Then there are light years away. There are several planets which are being repeatedly found where life forms are possible. When aliens are being sighted, when aliens are being seen, apparently we don't know. They may exist. They may not exist. It's for us to find. There are many times gurus don't tell everything to us because one, it may make us nervous. Second, we may not be able to digest. Even in whispers, in one of the whispers, Babaji Maharaj has written that Atlantis did exist. And they were a civilization which was far, far, far superior to what uh, we are today. If you look at some of the recent articles on the work done by the Pushpa Kumar, which brought uh, Lord Rama from uh, Lanka back to India, there is a theory going around that uh, hydrogen was the fuel which was used, and if they are able to find a way to make hydrogen work, 
that be the most inexpensive fuel which can take uh, flying to a different levels and they haven't yet found a way to do it. This is what one faction says. It's very easy for somebody else to ridicule saying this is not correct, this is not going to happen. Yet we don't know because somebody is speaking from their knowledge of having experienced aerodynamics or flying in a specific way of using ATF, uh, aviation turbine fuel. And yet when somebody says something else is possible, they can't even think. Maybe that's why scientists have an advantage and they have disadvantage also. You look at science or uh, religion or any faith for that matter. People are able to question, observe, continuously ready to experience newer and newer grounds. Are the people who are able to continuously jump? They are no more scientists. They are no more uh, spiritualists. They are like the famous statement of Babaji Maharaj. God is, that's it. I am, that's it. Do we continuously go up the knowledge? Let's come to the final critical couple of inputs that I wanted to share before we close off. Can you look at knowledge? Where do humans actually currently operate the level of knowledge? This has been confirmed by no less by several spiritual giants, including Swami Vivekananda, Babaji Maharaj, Daji, Chaji Maharaj. So many people have said. The entire humans work in a wafer thin spectrum of consciousness, conscious spectrums, conscious knowledge, what you call as conscious mind. That's where our entire, even this conscious mind for many of us looks to be like an infinite spectrum. Imagine that's nothing but a very, very, very simple thin layer connecting two extremes, one on the lower end, which is our subconscious which is our own backyard where we can expand into infinity. Very rarely we really tap into that source. Very few people have mastered that art. There are several material scientists who have done a lot of work on exploiting the subconscious but material gains. Even in some sense, meditation happens at a subconscious level for us. And the thoughts arise at the conscious level and this is where we have the challenges. And on the other side of the layer, Imagine a very thin diaphragm which is separating. On the lower end, you have the subconscious. On the other end, you have the superconsciousness, which you call as a godly terrain, where you are able to connect into the infinite space and knowledge that you can get by being connected to God. And the same God is reflected inside of us in the subconscious process. And what actually is a very, 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 very thin layer, like a very thin diaphragm, which is what is stopping the superconscious and the subconscious from merging and allowing us to expand into unimaginable terrain of godly knowledge. Yet, this consciousness, which is what actually we are operating 99.9999% of the time, even in that, we hardly scratch the surface of our potential. Imagine what is likely to happen if you are able to dive deeper into that. One of the interesting fields uh, which I mentioned about when I spoke the title of the movie in the initial stages, What the Bleep Do We Know? That movie, it's available on YouTube and other channels. You can look up and have a very interesting video. It's speaks about quantum physics. And if you really look at quantum physics, it's a mind-blowing stuff. I read, I keep on reading about quantum physics, yet the more I read, the lesser I seem to understand. 
And whatever little bit I understand, I am not able to experience. Which means whatever I have, whatever I know, or I think I know, is nothing but cliches, borrowed knowledge from scientists. Which, for example, look at a couple of simple statements that quantum physics makes for us to understand how complex it is. For us, we are used into this world which is nothing but particles. Quantum physics says that world is made of waves. And also particles. What appears as a wave can appear as a particle as well. What appears as a particle can be a wave. Raji recently gave a talk on this also, where he speaks about how, uh, by the observer's syndrome, and how when it moves through different holes, the whole thing changes. Quantum physics is uh, discrete. Quantum physics is probabilistic, which means two experiments normally do not have the same outcome. Which actually goes against the basis of science. Normally, unless we're able to repeat the same experiments with the same outcome, you can't say it is science. Yes, quantum science says we cannot repeat because every time it can change. It is non-local, which means when you change the circumstances, normally any science experiment based on the circumstances, the results might change. Whereas quantum, it doesn't. The probability of it not repeating itself still being the same. The paradox that it is non-local also remains simultaneously. This is a thing very, very, very difficult for us to grasp. Even scientists who understand quantum physics are not able to communicate in a way in which we can easily understand. One of the best books I have read uh, long ago uh, on this a book called The Dancing Wooly Masters. The famous book which came in the late uh, mid 90s or so, written by Pujol Kakra, I think. It beautifully gives uh, real life examples on what is quantum physics and what is uh, theory of relativity in basic way in which a normal human being can understand. Taking physics, quantum physics, onto normal, and that's why I picked up a little bit about that. Quantum physics looks like magic, but it is not. In fact, uh, Daji, in one of the recent talks, mentioned quantum physics is actually proven that by altering a particle or a wave in its current location, you can actually go back and change the past of that particle, which means you can change the way in which you can operate again in the present. And hence, when people are able to time travel those days. So I still remember that uh, in one of the conversations that uh, we had in Cottage, uh, Chariji was beautifully explaining that masters time travel many times. When they see something, many of us have seen it in movies. When you go back, change the course so that the effect which happens is uh, going to change. And you don't like the effect, again go back and change the course. Again go back and change the course. Many times masters come ahead of the time to prepare it so that when they come back again later, the field is prepared for them to work the way in which they want them to work. Maybe being in the present, they go into the future. There's a famous book, you might be able to, the man who saw the future of a person who uh, during World War I fell into a short coma. And in that period when he came back, uh, uh, he took a walk into 3,800 years of future. And he chronicled it and initially everyone thought uh, Paul Devich or somebody, I, I don't exactly remember the name, but I have quoted about this in one of my talks. Initially, they thought he was crazy. He was nuts, and that paper was literally 
failed. Fortunately, after several years, when he had passed on, they found out, and then they read, and some of the predictions he had made in those 30, 40 years had actually been found to be true. He actually did a time travel, which means there are multiple dimensions and multiple universes which are exist existing. Even what our masters say, your spiritual entity once it's you are through the mental womb of the guru and then you are born into the bright world as a spiritual entity on the other side. What do you do here? A portion of that gets fed there and it starts developing. As of now, we can only believe what our masters say because we don't really know if we have experienced that. Let me give a few closing remarks before I sign off and we move on to the, the next work that we have. Thanks to the internet today, we all appear bright. We all appear knowledgeable. We appear knowledgeable. If the source of brightness is a reflected one and not our own, then what are we? What happens to us? If we take the books out of us, If we take the knowledge that the gurus give to us, if we take internet out, if we take electricity out, can we even count? Can we even do a table of sixteen? Uh, I remember till school times I used to remember sixty-four, uh, uh, one to sixty-four tables. As I came to college, I had the calculators and uh, log tables. I'm sorry, I forgot. Today I can't even remember. Out of sight, out of mind. Because I had not experienced it, I had mugged it up to pass and clear the exam. The same is what internet is doing. The more and more information we seek from outside, for sake of short-term gratification or passing on some kind of a gain either to us or to others, it's nothing but we are living on reflected glory. Truly seeking Brahma Vidya. Even if your guru teaches how to reach the goal, is it sufficient if you read? And that's why they say a bookworm cannot really progress anywhere. We are all bookworms in that sense. What would happen if, as I asked, if electricity goes away? Charity had warned once. Daji also used to warn. In all probability, hundred, two hundred years from now, we may go back to medieval times when there was no electricity, no automobiles, no fuel, no fossil fuel, no nothing. How are we going to live? Go back to the old way of writing the scriptures, the way our ancestors wrote in palm leaves. I want to leave you with one question before I sign off. If knowledge is what comes through observation and experience, nothing else, and if you are clear of what our Brahma Vidya should be, it's your choice. What you define as Brahm is your problem. It cannot be forced by anybody else. It has to come from within. Whether you are a school student or a college student or a lecturer or a person who is pursuing any fine arts or a sportsman or a person who is seeking God, Brahma Vidya is something that comes through observation and experience, not by reflected knowledge that you pick up from books, from internet. From your guru, from the talks that he gives, all that is fine to ignite a spark inside of us. Take the story of Ekalaya. All that he needed was a spark from Dronacharya. After that, what he learned, he learned on his own. How many of us can be what is known in Sanskrit as Swayambhu, people who 
are made on your own. We need a spark from outside. It's perfectly fine. Hence the question to you: How to bring that inner light inside of us to glow and connect, so that we connect into perpetuity, into eternity, to the superconscious, onto the subconscious, by merging the conscious thin sheet what we have in between, by amalgamating that, by allowing that to merge between the Superconscious and the subconscious. When do we take the feeling off? Do we have an answer for that? If you have an answer, you have found the initial bricks with which you can lay the foundation to take you towards Brahmavidya. You know it better. The tools are available. It's up to you to find. I am not going to give you any ready-made answers because one, I myself don't know. And second, whatever I tell you will be my knowledge, which has come through my observation and my experience. I am not really sure if I really opened doors or if I closed doors. I confused you. I have given insights, but one thing I have surely done with certainty is I have called the bluff. What the bleep do we really know? I'll park it here and thank you. If there are any questions, I'd like to take it. Else, we can stop the recording and proceed with the meditation. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Uh, there is something that I would like to know. Uh, something that has been on my mind the past few days, and coincidentally, you are talking about this subject today. Uh, I would like to know, like you said, that there are various ways to reach to the same goal. Like you gave the example of the Mount Everest, several paths, but reaching to the same top. How does one know that you are? We are on the right path, and uh, you know to reach the goal. How does one know that this is the way? There are uh, external references, and there are internal references. If you are saying Kabir, you may have to find your own internal references. If you have a master of caliber. To a great extent, to start with, you proceed on the path with faith that this is the path. And as you go along, keep verifying through the process of your experiences. If you take the material life, live on the spiritual life. One of the best ways is for you to keep experimenting, keep taking bold experiments because. Many of the famous findings, whether it was of Thomas Alva Edison or Marie Curie or anyone that you take, many of them happened either through a failure or through an accident. Yes. The X-ray was found because they had left an unexposed portion in the night, and in the morning they found it. The same was true for penicillin. The same was true for the phone. The same was true for the flight. The same was true for anything that you take. Because if a person already knows what he is going to find, how can he ever find it? Hence, they set out with an intention to solve something, and in the process, like what Columbus did, instead of discovering India, he discovered Indies. You may discover something. If that what you discover becomes useful, maybe your experiment is successful. But in whatever I have understood in my interaction with uh, limited interaction with many learned people, including two masters with whom I have spent time, 
and I continue to spend time. It is not possible for anyone to say with certainty, this is the answer. This is the way. For example, till Sayadmar was found, what was the fastest way? It is said that central region was not even known to anyone. Okay, Sayadmar was found the way. Would there be in future a way which can be faster than this? It is a possibility. Lalaj Maharaj himself had told Babaji and Babaji himself had apparently invented that way, but for whatever reason he decided to continue with the path that we currently are pursuing. Tomorrow, if God decides to make us go towards him faster, maybe he'll send the next masters whenever he comes under 200, 300 from now. Because nature has time to wait into eternity. It might throw another uh, beautiful spin, googly, and come with something else. We don't know. Hence, be at it as they say. Find what the issue is. If you know where to reach, that itself is a big problem solved. And we have multiple tools, as I mentioned in the beginning, or rather in the last slide, which I don't want to answer. It's for you to find what will work for you, whether you want to meditate, whether you want to pray, whether you want to approach it through the process of bhakti or karma yoga or a process of religion, it's up to you to find. But at least if you're clear what your goal is, that itself is a very good beginning. Okay. But if you really look at it, there are internal and external reference points and both will have to coexist because without a valid external reference point, a guru to help you, the internal reference point you may not be able to verify. And today we fortunately have that verification point uh, which comes to us in the form of group. I Thank hope you. I have answered you. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you.